This is Unbroken, healing through storytelling. Just to let you know, we have a vodcast on YouTube where you can watch the edited highlights of the episode. And don't forget to subscribe. If you fancy the full audio version, symbols, just keep listening. Oh, and if you've got a second, please give us five stars and a review. It really helps us stand out and get this important message to even more people that need to hear it the most. Meantime, enjoy today's episode. My guest today is Andrea Carter-Brown. Andrea Carter Brown's new collection of award-winning poetry, September the 12th, was published for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Her previous collections are Domestic Karma, The Disheveled Bed, and Brook and Rainbow, winner of the 2001 Sow's Ear Pressed Chapbook Prize. Her poems have won awards from Five Points, River Sticks, the MacGuffin, and the Poetry Society of America. They are cited in the Library of Congress online guide to the poetry of 9-11 and have been featured on NPR, Poetry Daily and as Split This Rock Poem of the Week, a founding editor of Barrow Street and managing editor of the Emily Dickinson Journal. She has been series editor of the Words Work Washington Prize since 2017. An avid birder, she lives in Los Angeles where she grows lemons, limes, oranges and tangerines in her backyard. I hadn't heard anything. I had no idea anything was going on. And, uh, but my sister, who lives in North Carolina, saw the plane go into the North Tower on TV. Even though other buildings were damaged, they did not disappear. The localized footprint of the damage still is shocking to me. It made the shock of the day deepen into a sense of complete unreality. I felt like it was hard enough to put one foot in front of the other and find new ways to go about my life. Because of course all of the normal patterns of where you buy things, how you get places, whom you can see. That was completely interrupted. Flashlights on, dust masks positioned over nose and mouth. We walk through the lobby, up five flights of stairs, and down dark hallways reeking of spoiled food. Inside the apartment, dirty white dust covers everything. The dust contains ashes of the thousands who vanished four mornings ago. We know this without being told. Share your stories. Don't keep them bottled up inside of you. Everyone's story has value, merit, and beauty actually. So welcome to the show, Andrea. How are you doing? I'm doing fine this morning. Thank you, Madeline. I should Very say, nice to be with you. Uh, lovely to have you here. And I should say good morning to you because you are across the pond and it is early morning for you. So because the show is called Unbroken, the very first question I ask all of my guests is what does the word unbroken mean to you? Even though I knew this question was coming, it is a difficult question to answer. But I would say that 
This book is the evidence of being unbroken by 9-11. It took me 20 years to write. There were ups and downs. There were periods of intense activity. There was recovery from illness caused by 9-11. There were personal losses. Um, There was a move cross country. And, um, but I would not give up on it. I felt um, that my story should be part of the historical record. Mm -hmm. And because I was a poet, I wanted to write it as, or the way that I could write it was poetry. Um, We can talk more about that later if you want to. Yes, um, it's interesting because you're the second poet that I've interviewed in this little batch I'm doing at the moment. And when I picked up my other guest poetry book and yours, I thought, I really need to read poetry more often. It's just something so stunningly raw and beautiful and very unnerving about your book. But it just conjured up so many images. It was really powerful. Um, uh, it's hard to say if I enjoyed it because it was, it was very emotional to read. I made the mistake I told you earlier of reading it before I went to bed and it... It just conjured up all these images in my mind, but we will get to discuss your book and what it is about later on. So we know that you produced it for the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and would you like to tell us what happened? Because you literally lived one block away, didn't you? And it was a a call from your sister, Deborah that alerted you to what was going on. Exactly. We lived in an apartment a block from the World Trade Center, and... um, I hadn't heard anything. I had no idea anything was going on. And, uh, but my sister who lives in North Carolina saw the plane go into the North Tower on TV on Good Morning America of all crazy things. And she knew how close I was. And she heard the words that came out of her mouth even before hello are, are you okay? And of course I was okay. Uh, But the minute that I ran to the other end of the apartment and looked out the living room window, I saw the North Tower beyond on fire, Mm -hmm. sort of imploding from within. This was about 15 minutes after that plane had flown into the tower. So all of that stuff happened very quickly. It's interesting uh, that you didn't hear anything, isn't it? I find that fascinating. Yeah, it's it is fascinating. Um, and what's fascinating to me still today is the selective sensory response that I had as I was living through it. Um, I some senses were incredibly acute, acute to such a degree that I have trouble believing the memories of those senses. Other senses, like my hearing, were gone Mm -hmm. completely. It was like I experienced watching the towers. I fled all of my experiences until I got to Staten Island, which was an hour and a half later. Yeah, no, reading Um, your book, it was as if you were just in this bubble of disbelief. That's the only way I could, you know, feel for you that it was just 
you know, how could your mind compute what it was seeing? Because we had, the world had never seen anything like that before. Terrorism on that scale. Yeah, and, and even at that point, before the towers collapsed, um, I mean, after the towers collapsed, the scale became more evident, I think. Um, and yes, it was, uh, we had never imagined anything like that. Um, and I was probably in shock, but I was extremely focused on survival. You were, because you even decided, no, quick, run back, get my phone. And you ran back and got your phone, which was running out of battery, and, and then left the apartment and, and fled. And you found yourself on the ferry, didn't you? The Staten Island ferry. Yes. Yeah. Where, that wasn't my original plan, but um, that was the plan that took me furthest from the towers, the quickest, and I was convinced from the beginning that the towers would fall. And so I wanted to get as far away as quickly as possible. And that was amazing insight, wasn't it? Because we saw them hit, but we didn't think they would collapse. When they collapsed, that's when I think collectively the world went, oh, that gasp. And, but you were always aware that a plane goes into a building, it's going to collapse. <laughs> well, and I think that was unusual, but... If you had been where I was and looking up at the quickness and the severity of the damage, um, there was something always so fragile about those tall buildings. They were too tall for their dimensions. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, what happened was that the fires consumed the floors immediately surrounding the um, where the planes went in. And then it went up and down through the central core of services. So it quickly penetrated mm -hmm. through to the structural heart of the building. And it melted the steel. It dissolved everything. Um, and um, the, the, it's interesting to me that the South Tower came down First, mm -hmm. it was the second tower hit because it was hit lower. The plane went in, you know, maybe 60% up. As a more vulnerable to... spot in the, in the building. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So... Um, and it was when you were I... on the ferry when everything just went black, didn't it? And you knew it was the dust, it was the, the crumbling that the tower had gone. Well, the thing is that I didn't know exactly. Mm -hmm that that's what had happened. Um, in fact, I think if you were there that day, you thought that the, you would have thought that the, the destruction would have covered a wider area, mm -hmm. that in fact it was only the World Trade Center and the adjacent wings which disappeared, even though other buildings were damaged they did not disappear. The localized footprint of the damage still is shocking to me. Mm -hmm. When I was on the ferry, I couldn't see what was going on. Uh, we were hemmed in by the terminal and the, the um, bollards and everything else. 
But then suddenly the world was black and you knew something terrible had happened and, but you didn't know what it was. And it wasn't until I got to Staten Island and was entering the birth in Staten Island that I could look back and see the first, the tallest skyscrapers poking up through this enormous cloud of dust and the World Trade Center was not there and shorter towers were. And that was when I knew for sure that they had come down. The first had come down and then the second came down. And, and you must have been thinking that your apartment must have, without a doubt, I couldn't destroyed. believe that our apartment survived. Yes, and your husband believed that you must have been killed because he knew you were home reading your paper, drinking your coffee. But it took a little while, didn't it, to meet up with him? Oh, it took about 12 hours. Yeah, and the mobile network was jammed and not being able to get through to people, but you managed to get through to Deborah, your sister, and, and relay messages to her to say that you were alive. But it was what was lovely, or lovely in a time of this, was the beauty of the kindness of people that you met along the way and giving you clothes and letting you use a toilet at the police station and, and Joyce, who had about 50 people in her apartment, you know, just be together, use emails and phone signals. That was incredible. Yes, the, I, I think of this book as a book of gratitude mm-hmm. to those people. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were people that day, some of which you mentioned, but they were the people that took us in, the succession of people who made their homes available to us because our home was unlivable. I'm alive and I'm survived relatively unbroken mm-hmm. because of those people. And when I was preparing the book and I had been over the years keeping lists, my publisher finally said to me, you can only have one page for thank yous. <laughs> and it was very painful to me to have to leave some people off. Yeah. So it was one of the most beautiful things that came out of the terribleness was the sense of community and um, strangers, people we barely knew. Uh, In in about five years after I started writing, I came to London and I gave a reading at um, University College Mm -hmm. and at a writing seminar and we were sitting around a table and no sooner had I finished reading than the room erupted in sound. Everyone wanted to speak mm-hmm. and give their memories of the World Trade Center, Windows on the World, Manhattan. They all, it was, you know, a living memory to them, even though they were across the pond. And I was very moved by that. And that's something that I found wherever I've taken the book. So, yeah, but they were famous buildings that were always there, you know, everybody knew them. So it took you 12 hours to get to your husband and then you eventually went back to your apartment, didn't you, with armed police. Four days later, they allowed you in to collect some papers and and stuff. What was that like to go back the first time after the towers had fallen? It made the shock of the day deepen into a sense of complete unreality. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
our apartment only had a lot of dust in it. I use that word only guardedly. Yes, because you, when you write about the dust in your book, which you're going to give us a, a, a reading soon of the dust part, you say without doubt, without being told, that you know that that dust was the remains of the thousands of people that disappeared that day. That really, I think, is what stopped me from sleeping. That, that's a powerful sentence. Well, it felt like it was no longer our home. It felt like it was a sacred burial ground. And um, the dust was almost white. It was quite gritty, slightly uh, greasy. Um, you know, it's, it was an amalgam of many things, but the remains were in there. And many people, we lived in an apartment complex called Gateway Plaza, which on 9-10 had 5,500 people. When we finally moved back in spring of 2002, only 500 people moved back. And for almost a year, uh, there was uh, there were dumpsters parked at the bottom of the buildings, which filled up every day with the belongings that people had just abandoned. Why did we go back? Because that was our home. But I have to say that it never felt the way a home should after that day. It had been tarnished in some way, hadn't it? Well, it had been taken over by a larger presence. And you also say when you moved back, there were hardly any shops open, you know, the, the tourists came and kind of gawked at you all, and it, it must have just been a very, I don't know, a surreal place to live. It was surreal. And on top of the, the gawking tourists, which I, I felt as a violation, to tell you the truth, mm. I felt like it was hard enough to put one foot in front of the other and find new ways to go about my life. Because, of course, all of the normal patterns of where you buy things, how you get places, whom you can see, that was completely interrupted. It took until the following spring for a store to open within walking distance that sold food. Um, the drugstore opened, and that was the that was the first one to open. They were repeatedly looted. So I don't know. It time went by, and it just became apparent that despite the boosterism of the economic interests and the government, that nothing was going to be the way it was. Mm-hmm. And when it was tenable again. It would be quite a long time. My husband at one point said to me, it's going to be 15 years. And I thought, oh, that's ridiculous. Um, but in fact, it took 15 years for the new tower to get built and the memorial to get built. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in New York when the museum just opened. It was my eldest daughter's 21st. But to be honest, I found it, it was too much because it's like, 
within the museum, there's like a museum within the museum where they, they show you all people's artefacts and they play answer phone messages and I just wanted to get out. And, and then you were in a maze inside the museum and it was just, I struggled to get out, I was really panicking and then we wandered into a place where they showed you all their faces and it was, it was just too much for me. So I don't know what it was like to be a resident of the same country because I just, it was just overwhelming grief to be in that museum. Uh, I haven't been back. Mm -hmm. I haven't been to the museum. I've looked at it online. Uh, I do think museums are not for near survivors, but they're for people who want to pay homage. I, I almost felt it was a duty if I was there than to pay some yes. respect, but actually it was it was too much for my system. <laughs> it was, yeah, too sensitive to it all. Yeah, I... I um I mean I carry that around with me. When we went back that first time, we found some of the um artifacts yes. that had floated down from people's offices. Yeah, and on your on your website you have an amazing, extraordinary collection of the things that you came across. I I'll put your details at the end of the show notes, but for people to go and look at the things that you found, it was it's quite fascinating, isn't it, how these things came to you? Yeah, and every periodically, uh, my husband and I have a conversation. Should we return them, try to find the people to whom they belong? Um, should we give them to the collection at the museum? Uh, and I finally decided that to sort of particularize them on my website mm -hmm. might be a better use of them. Yeah. But but I don't live with them. I keep them sort of in a like a safe deposit box. And I don't know whether the people that the business cards belong to survived or any of that. The memorial that speaks to me that I revisit is the small town memorial mm -hmm. in the town where I grew up. It's a suburb of New York called Glen Rock, New Jersey. And there's it lost 11 people that day. Doesn't seem like a lot of people in the overall scheme of things, but it's a very small town. Everybody and would have been connected to those 11 Absolutely. Yeah. And um, that town created a really intimate, lovely memorial. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I never knew those people. I've written about them. I feel mm -hmm. like I knew them. I care about them and their their the people who survived them. Um, and I'll be going there to read in that town when things open up again. But uh, it's the scale of that memorial is uh, intimate and manageable, mm -hmm. whereas I think the large memorial is just, okay. the idea of it is overwhelming to me. Yeah, we just thought we were there, you know. I don't. I mean, no, I'm, I think it was very day. brave of you. Yeah, and it just 21st opened. Twenty-first birthday celebration. Go to the nine eleven. She did say after that, Mum, I don't want to do any more any more museums. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go to the art galleries, but she'd done enough, so we went to Victoria's Secret instead. <laughs> <laughs> now that's that's a statement of for life. Yes, you know, before quite a before few times actually, that neighborhood already had a lot of memorials, and. And we used to, every new memorial that went up, first the police memorial went up mm -hmm. on a wall, then the Irish hunger memorial went up, okay. then the uh, Museum of Jewish Heritage went up, mm -hmm. 
which was built, uh, my husband used to say it looked like the ovens, but anyway, um, it was actually designed to look like the tops of the Torah scrolls. But, okay. um, and he said, we're living in the Museum of the Dead. And then 9-11 happened. It was just sort of crushing. Um, How long did you survive in your flat when you returned? How long did it take before you left? Well, we moved, we, we were there about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. And um, my husband got offered a job in London. Mm-hmm. So we moved to London for seven months. Okay. And thinking that if seven months, we go back after seven months, everything would be better. When we went back after seven months, we hadn't been there two weeks when at the same table drinking morning coffee where I was the morning of 9-11, he looked at me and he said, is this working for you? And it was easy to say no, because it wasn't. And within six weeks, we had left and moved to Los Angeles. To the opposite side of the country, literally. Yes. Well, it was a place where we could both work. We had been coming and going out here when my husband worked here for about 10 years. Uh, we were we had up until that point we had always been afraid of earthquakes um because we had experienced some and some big aftershocks but mm-hmm. after 9/11 earthquakes seemed sort of benign so you moved yourself physically but i'm wondering what it does to you mentally you know emotionally how just because you've put this gone to the other side of the country does it all still follow you how does it impact on oh your life? it's all inside of me it'll always be inside of me and so the the story of the 20 years of this book's making, but of the 15, 16 years that we've lived in Los Angeles mm-hmm. is uh, the story of accepting that mm-hmm. and um, trying to, I mean, you just don't look at life the same afterwards. Because I know you speak about PTSD, having nightmares, and one particular part that also jumped out at me was it took you a year to realize that the sound you were hearing in your dreams was people screaming. Well, sound was the, the thing that went, but obviously it was on in my subconscious. Um, yeah, those, in fact... Uh, a lot of those recurring nightmares, which had really abated dramatically, um, revived during the pandemic. Because the pan- living in the pandemic revived a lot of the feelings that we had after 9-11. For a lot of people, if there's any trauma that's maybe not completely processed, it just had this way of bubbling to the surface because we couldn't do what we normally do, which is distract ourselves and, you know, avoid it and keep ourselves busy. So we had to, we were forced to be with ourselves. So anything that we're not dealt with comes up. Absolutely. And that's that was my experience. But the other thing I wanted to mention is that... Um, I don't think this book would have been written or finished if we hadn't moved to a place where I felt relatively safe. Mm-hmm. 
and where I could experience beauty. Uh, because um, there was something, the first section of the book is about what life was like before 9-11, mm -hmm. where we were living. It's, a, it's five sections, that's right, isn't it? I remember it from yeah. reading it. Uh, and they're all quite different, you know. I, I got to some point, I thought, I didn't know this was poetry. This is rather lovely. It's, it's just really your narrative, but the way you tell the story is, is beautiful. But the, they're very different structures, and I, I get a sense that it kind of mirrors your journey, that they're very different parts of your journey as well. That's a, that's a good way of putting it. Thank you. I like that. Um, yes. Uh, this book at one point was a lot longer. Mm -hmm. And this book at one point was completely what you would call poetry. Mm -hmm. The part that's the narrative section now was sonnets okay. and something called a sonnet crown which with repeated lines and um there was something about the beauty of the sonnet form which grated on me and which i thought did not serve the story of um the narrative of what I had experienced. But there were other aspects of the experience which did feel lyrical and traditional. And they are written in more or less traditional forms. Some of them were invented. Um, the section of, in the, the heart of the book are poems about the 11 people who died from my old hometown. Is that the part that's called This Is For You? No, that's that's the dedication poem. The dedication. It's called, um, and that comes at the end of what I call the aftermath section. But um, it's the center section of the book is called the Rock in the Glen. Oh yes, okay. And uh, which is a sort of ge geological landmark for which the mm -hmm. town is named. Mm -hmm. um, and those each of those eleven people has a a poem about him or her which was researched from memorial material. Uh, and those are all sonnets, and they're what are called half hay sonnets. And it's little stories about the person's life, isn't it? And it's like, yeah, almost like their last snapshot. moments. Just a, almost yeah. just like their last moments. And yeah, it's, it was powerful again. So um, when I allowed myself to write in different ways about different aspects of the experience, it um, became possible to write the book. Um, but there was an aspect to that process which, uh, I finished, I thought I had finished the book, we were going to press mm -hmm. and um, my husband asked to read it. He had not been reading it while I was writing it. And uh, he finished it and he said, well, there's three things that you didn't put in here, which I think are the most dramatic moments of the entire story. Mm -hmm. And I had slid over them, Madeline, because I did not want to write about them. And I had not even realized that I had not included them or that they needed to be there. So at the very last minute, I had to go back in and write 
about the people who were jumping from the towers, about the um, the abandoned baby stroller that I saw as I fled, and the the single sneaker. What was the single sneaker doing there? And then on the boat, when I looked down and I saw the, the swimmers. And you and, very you recognized that that could have been you. If you hadn't got on the ferry, it could have been you swimming. Well, that life. was my intention. I would jump in the water. Yeah. But, of course, what a harebrained idea that was. Mm-hmm. This was not some calm surface, some nice benign lake. Mm-hmm. This was a choppy, churned up, filled with currents and... And so you have all all of that, but then you have the beauty of your husband saying, I'm so glad I came back to kiss you a second time. And that, oh, that just really, that shot an arrow into my heart reading that part. So it's like the contrast of all of that and then all of that beauty and kindness and gratitude. It was, yeah, I think it's just full of contrast, your book. Well, just like... It's helped to have each other during the pandemic. Um, he, it's his journey too. His story is different from mine. And I recently had this idea that I might interview him uh-huh. about his story. Because for a while he kept saying to me, why aren't you talking about, why aren't you angry? I'm not naturally an angry person. I have trouble getting to the angry voice. Um, and there were certainly a lot of grounds for anger mm-hmm. in what happened afterwards. Uh, but um, that wasn't, I, I just chose not to go there, I guess is a good way to put it. And, but I would like to know what his story is, actually. Yeah, now that I've told mine, and I thought I might do a, an interview like this of him mm-hmm. and put it on my website. And I so look, if people were interested. To listen, I would, I would, <laughs> you've got one listener already. I would listen. <laughs> well, we're kind of really almost at the end, but before we uh, end, I'd love it if you would uh, pick a, a small part from your book, uh, tell us what it is, and do a little reading for us. Okay. Okay. I think that I will read the section about going back into our apartment mm-hmm. and what we discovered. This at the end of the second section. Uh, this is takes place four days later on uh, Saturday morning. Uh, we were ushered back under armed guard. We had 10 minutes in our apartment and then we had to leave. Flashlights on, dust masks positioned over nose and mouth. We walk through the lobby, up five flights of stairs, and down dark hallways reeking of spoiled food. Inside the apartment, dirty white dust covers everything. The dust contains ashes of the thousands who vanished four mornings ago. We know this without being told. The dead now lie in our home, now cover every surface. They coat silverware, the runners on which drawers 
open and close. They sleep in book bindings. They seek between pages and underneath volumes packed tight on shelves. They find corners of closets where we haven't looked in years. Yes, the dead are with us, will always be with us. Our home has become theirs. We hesitate to disturb their final resting place. Leave them in peace, if there could be any. As for the living, I long to simply walk away, take nothing, and never come back. So powerful, even more powerful to hear you reading it. You obviously read a very different style to how I read it in my head, but oh, thank you. It's just, like I said, it just conjures up so many images. It's so beautifully and heartbreakingly descriptive. Yeah. Thank you, Madeline. It is, it is an extraordinary book, um, and I recommend everyone to, to read it because it's a real legacy as well, isn't it? Well, I hope that people, well, everyone that has at least spoken to me or written to me, uh, strangers, mm-hmm. has found something in it of their experience, and it's triggered their own memories. Um, and I think telling one's story is, is just crucial to survival, to being unbroken. Um, I always wanted, I always imagined this as an odyssey. Mm-hmm. My journey and as something that should be heard as well as read, we're in the process of making an audiobook. Brilliant. Um, I think I would love to, I think I would enjoy that more actually to hear it in your beautiful voice as well and the style in which you read. But yes, my guest yesterday actually said that um, when we share our story and connect with others, something beautiful happens, and that's exactly what you've done. Thank you, Madeline. Yeah. So it really just leaves me to thank you. We've kind of come to the end so quickly of our interview here. Um, any advice or, or wisdom that you'd like to leave? with anyone that's been affected by it or, you know, that's gone through a major disaster? Share your stories. Don't keep them bottled up inside of you. Everyone's story has value, merit, and beauty, actually. And um, this is how I live. Of course, I'm a writer. But you don't have to be a writer to tell your story. Um, And it doesn't change things, but it helps you to live with difficult experiences. In telling it, you, you own it. It becomes part of you. Thank you so much, Andrea. Unbroken. Healing through storytelling. If you haven't already, go on, download, subscribe, give us a five-star rating. It really helps us get this important and life-changing message out to as many people as possible. There is already a selection of fantastic episodes to choose from and a brand new one coming soon. Unbroken. Healing through storytelling. Playing now on all the main platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher for Android, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and here. 
Play Unbroken, the podcast, with Madeline Black.